This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. Today, I want to talk about the problems with the cost of housing, why rents have gone sky high, housing prices have gone through the roof. It's ugly, but out of this are going to come new ways of doing things that are going to increase the inventory of houses and make them cheaper to own and run. And this is also a time of year when people are trying to make sure they have their act together in so many different ways that people are interested in life insurance. And I want to tell you, way too many people think they bought life insurance when they get it from their employer I'm going to tell you, that's not generally a good idea why you should own your own life insurance policy and how you should buy it. That's coming up for you later. But right now, uh, it's been uh, such a burden on people when they're getting notices of rent increases where they're renting. Or they may even be getting a notice from their landlord that they're not going to renew your lease. They're going to kick you out because they think they can make a lot more money on somebody else versus the rent increase they'll try to get you to absorb. And this is simple supply and demand. In spite of all the apartments that were built in metro areas over the tens, we still are short housing units in the United States. And we're short apartments, but not nearly as short apartments as we are of single-family homes. We are millions and millions short of single-family homes. And I've talked about that before, that it was all an effect from the banking scandals that culminated in the Great Recession from 2007 to 12, and that so many builders, maybe you'd been in business for decades, went out of business and there's just not been a large enough housing manufacturing sector in the United States to catch up. And so apartment renters are taking it on the chin because of the severe overall shortage of housing in the U.S. And we need a whole rethink of housing in the U.S. And I think about What's been going on at Habitat for Humanity is an example that Habitat affiliates have been very experimental. How do you keep building more affordable housing when the cost of construction materials have gone up? Uh, The cost of everything you need if you're going to have to have subs has gone up. So what do you do? Habitat affiliates have been experimenting with two different ways of building that are at cutting edge in the United States. One is doing 3D printed homes. They're much more energy efficient. 
They require much less maintenance. They can be built at lower cost, and they're built much quicker. The second is something that uh, I think the first Habitat affiliate in the United States to do this was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I don't know if they're still doing panel built, but there are Habitat affiliates doing panel built, which is a different method of construction that's really, really solid, quicker to build, cheaper to build, and I talk about all the time all the things that are going on with, you think about what's happened in the hotel industry with how many hotels now are being built in factories and the hotel rooms completely built out are being trucked to the site and put into place by crane, cutting the building costs by as much as 30% and the time of construction potentially in half in order to build a hotel. And these techniques can be implemented, obviously, in apartment construction. And there are so many things that can be done in, in uh, single-family housing construction in order to increase supply much quicker and to be able to build better houses that cost less to build and can be sold for less. I still think about something I talked about last summer which was a 3D home development that was uh, being built in Palm Springs, California. And the homes were built for so much less money than sticks-up construction normally is built in the desert in California. And those homes sold out, I think the whole development sold out in a minute and a half or something. Wow. Because they were able, and these are not any kind of subsidized homes, it's just a for-profit builder, but they're able to build a home at a much lower price doing 3D construction than they can otherwise. And faster, right? Yeah, I mean, you should see these videos. It's so much faster. So cool. The videos of, um, this is more exciting than watching paint dry, I promise. (laughs) When you watch a video about how you build a 3D printed home and it's this portable fabricating machine that's brought to the build site and it's got the computer inputs that tell them what they're going to build and it just builds that house right before your eyes in days. It's crazy and solid and doesn't look weird. In fact, there's a lot of creativity you can do with 3D printed homes. There's a lot of creativity you can do with factory-built homes, and we just need to reimagine how we do housing in the United States to create that affordability. Traditional builders are typically very much entrepreneurial. There's a lot of risk involved in building homes, but in terms of how they build the home, that's when most builders end up being too conservative. And they don't try, they don't step out and try the new technologies. Every field just about in society is advancing so quickly because of adapting to technological changes, new ways of production, new ways of doing things. And one field in our society that has stayed, for the most part, stuck in the past is our nation's housing industry. And that's what's got to change. 
In the meantime, what do you do if I'm talking to you? It's like, that's all nice, Clark, but what about the notice I just got from my landlord of the big rent increase? What do I do? This is one of those times that getting out there and shopping matters so much and looking at different uh, communities, different complexes, different management companies, because different management companies are different levels of aggressive in trying to push through rent increases. You can't just be a sitting duck where you live if they're going to just take a shredder to your wallet. You're the one who has to step forward and be aggressive in shopping in the marketplace to see if you can find a better deal until the supply shortage lessens. This question is from Robert in Connecticut. I sent this question to you in November, and this was what it was. I booked a flight for my wife and I to Iceland on May 21st and noticed I did not have our names the same as our passports. I somehow got rooted to a random website, and they assured me they would change our names for $450. Our names have never been changed with Iceland Air, and they have never heard of this company. I contacted my credit card company, Bank of America, and they said it happened too long ago and to contact the company. I did, and they refused to do anything. Well, guess what? Bank of America agreed to give me a permanent credit. Persistence pays off. Robert? I am very impressed that outside the 60-day period that Bank of America came through for you, likeliest possibility is that this popped up in the Visa MasterCard system as a scam charge, that not just to you, but to many people. And that may be why you were able to get a credit outside the 60 days. Is for the error with the names versus your passports. Airlines are generally uh, very much based on their culture, how they treat you in that case. One thing that you may want to look at is, oh, you already went on the trip, I see, May 21. Um, depending on the airline, they may be more flexible than you might imagine with a clerical name change. Let's say a name is misspelled, but the gist of the name is correct. Depending on the airline, they may be accommodating or may not. And it just depends on being politely persistent. But anytime you get an airline ticket, look closely at the spelling of the names the day you buy that ticket, the day that ticket's issued, to see if, in fact, there is any clerical error with the spelling of the name or that it matches perfectly to your passport in the case of international travel. This one's from Sebastian in Washington. Hello, Clark, and Happy New Year. We are looking ahead to my kids attending college in a few years, and we are considering for them to attend university in Canada. They are Canadian citizens and would benefit from reduced tuition there, similar to in-state tuition in the U.S., can we use the 529 plan we have set up for them to pay for college in Canada? And how about in other countries? So great question. And just a little tip, you get lower tuition because your kids are Canadian citizens, but also a little known thing, a lot of Canadian colleges are much cheaper just straight out than U.S. colleges. And they have some very high quality institutions in Canada If you think you can handle the cold, 
that is uh, that is <laughs> there for you for so many months and so much of Canada, um, it is a potential way to save money. On the issue of using 529 money, yes, you are able to use 529 money for a lot of colleges in Canada and actually a lot of colleges in other countries as well. And the website savingforcollege.com has a guide to eligible institutions. They have a search function too. And you'll be able to see if the college or colleges that are on the wish list for your kids in Canada are colleges that are eligible for using 529 plan money at. I just want to say, because I did go to that too, they do have something that's a little confusing. You have to fill in the state, but under the state are some country codes. So that could be, that's, I wish they would fix that. Um, this question's from Christine in California. I have a small savings account for my son. Will having that savings account affect his chances for financial aid when he gets into college? Yes. So the way it works is that money that's in a kid's name Roughly a third of it is expected to be used each year towards college. Money in a parent's name, I think it's 5.6%, something like that, of assets are expected to be used as a family contribution for college. So having money in your son's name does in part affect eligibility for college. So the question is, you said it's a small savings account. Uh, I don't know what your definition of small is, Christine, but if it's less than a few thousand dollars, then it will have minimal impact on his eligibility for financial aid. So, uh, Krista, are you immortal? No, but I'm convinced someday we all will be, right? (laughs) Well, we'll see. But right now we know we all have an expiration date. And we don't like to think about that expiration date, but I'm going to make you think about it because that's what I do. And we're going to talk about the role that life insurance plays in protecting your family and your loved ones in the future. So many people who have life insurance tell me, oh, yeah, I have life insurance. I get it from where I work. And that's the wrong answer. The reason you don't want to have life insurance from work is you don't know that you're going to be working there forever. And what you pay through a deduction of your paycheck for life insurance from a place of employment usually is more than you'd have to pay going to buy your own policy. But people find it really distasteful to go out and buy their own insurance. But now, let me give you an added attraction to think about buying your own policy. AT&T, one of the largest companies in the United States, gave such a wonderful Christmas gift to their employees and retirees. And this was especially targeted towards their retirees. Wall Street Journal did a long expose on this at Christmas time. AT&T wins the Ebenezer Scrooge Award for last year's Christmas because they reneged on the written promises to their retirees that they would have life insurance from the company of a certain amount. 
They had a brainiac in the executive suite, according to the Wall Street Journal, who found a clause in their employee agreement that they could just change their mind, and they did. And many other companies have it as well. By the way, AT&T decided, you know, we're going to rip off all the retirees of their life insurance, but the executives are going to keep theirs. How about that? How about that, AT&T? Wow. I think we need to ask that actress who does the commercials, who did the one recently with the kids. You may have seen this. I only see commercials because of football. Football's <laughs> coming close to an end. I'm sorry. But she did this thing where she gave this little girl, tiny little lollipop, and gave the older kid this giant lollipop. And the little girl says, that's not fair. <laughs> and the actress said, you're right. That's not fair. And that's not how we treat people at AT&T. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Except your own employees and retirees who you are treating like dirt. Wow. Makes me wonder why I have AT&T for broadband. Anyway, because you made me get rid of the T-Mobile at home. Right. You mean person. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> we had to broadcast. Yeah, the, the T-Mobile at home is a wireless internet. It's a deal. But for the quality we needed for the podcast, it wasn't strong enough signal. Anyway, I digress. The point is, companies just rent us, and you're dependent on the uh, ethics of the management that exists at a time, and depending on your employer for life insurance is a terrible choice, except in one circumstance— if you have a pre-existing condition that makes you unqualified to underwrite having your own policy, then take the company up on whatever life insurance they're going to offer you, knowing they might pull an AT&T on you. I think that's going to be a new lingo for me, pulling an AT&T on workers. Anyway. Or if your company gives it to you for free. But even if they give it to you for free. You have to cover yourself elsewhere. Right. Yes. Thank you. Yes. You don't. Because you give it to us for free, which is very generous. But I would not count on that at all. No. Okay. That I do that. Okay. Because I want you to have your own life insurance policy. Level term life insurance is so easy to buy, so dirt cheap, and more and more companies now do instant issue where they use the data available on all of us about our medical histories, to decide that they can instantly underwrite us and you can do an application and have a policy issued in less than 15 minutes instead of the normal insurance industry four months. And with level term, you just pick out an amount of money based on how much you earn. I like for you to buy 10 times that. And depending on your age, if you have kids, you buy 10 to 30 years of level term insurance. And all it is, is a policy that you hope you outlive it. You hope you pay the premiums for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And you say, man, I paid all that money all those years and got nothing out of it. You got more life. That's what you got out of it. But you insured your life 
for the key years of your working cycle, of your working lifetime. So I've got information on Clark.com, how to buy a level term policy, the ins and outs of it, very simple to buy. This is stuff you can't generally buy from a salesperson because the commissions are so low on it that they can't even um, buy. If they have an electric car, they can probably afford to come see you and write a policy and come back. But if they're having to buy gasoline, they can't afford that. <laughs> and so the, any, any human insurance person is going to try to sell you some kind of weirdo insurance policy like variable universal life or who knows what vanishing premium life or whatever crazy thing they come up with. What you want to protect your family that costs nearly nothing is level term insurance and not from AT&T because they may pull an AT&T on you. And by the way, as always, if AT&T would like to have rebuttal time to talk about why they're not the wrong choice, Remember their slogan used to be AT&T, the right choice. Um, if you want to have rebuttal, that's what we do here, is if somebody from the company wants to come on and explain themselves about why they cheated their retirees, you're welcome to do so. Here's some questions. One, this first one's from Dan in Ohio. Experience shows me having a FICO score of 753. The other day I applied for a, an auto loan and the dealer ran my credit check and said my credit score was 840. Are the scales the same among the various FICO scores? I'm wondering why there's such a big difference. So Dan, first of all, your FICO starting with experience showed at 753, already a top drawer score. The 840 that the dealer said you had is just a whisker less than a perfect score, which on most scales is 850. But yes, you have many, many different FICO scores, depending on the purpose they're for, mortgage, car, credit card, uh, and depending on which bureau they're relying on. So you said your Experian was 753. The 840 they pulled could have been from TransUnion or Equifax. They, different credit granters report to different bureaus, and very, it's very rare they report to all three. So the gap, your 87-point gap, that's unusually large from one FICO score to another, but it's not unprecedented. In your case, it was to the good. Usually when I hear from people, it's to the bad. They'll check their score and it'll be a whatever, 775. And then they go to the car deal and they say, oh, you only have a 644. They're like, what? So in your case, it was obviously to the good for you. This is from Kevin in Florida. This week we received a letter from our credit union seeking our signatures for an arbitration provision and class action waiver. Do you advise signing it or completing the right to reject the arbitration provision from the form that they provide? Definitely reject. You'll be like the only person who actually paid attention and did so. But it's um, making me shallow breathe that a credit union that is owned by and for you, you own the place, that they're pulling a bank kind of stunt on you saying, if we mess up, you got no rights. And that is not right at all for a co-op, which a credit union is, that's there owned by and to serve 
their members to do this kind of stuff with the arbitration and the no class action, blah, blah, blah. So, Kevin, I'm concerned and disturbed that your credit union is behaving this way. And yes, if you want to do the effort to opt out, which again, almost no one will do, go ahead and do that. This is from Michael in Georgia. For airfare to Europe, is it good to use a travel consolidator? And if so, do you have any recommendations? Normally, I like for you to shop consolidator fares for international travel. Consolidators are bulk volume discounters. In this era of a pandemic, or whatever we're going to call COVID moving forward, there are too many disruptions with travel and with air travel, and I don't want you buying from a consolidator because as people found even using traditional third-party booking sources like uh, Expedia, Travelocity, that kind of thing, in the early part of COVID, it was impossible to get anything done with them for refunds or rebookings or whatever. And it's best in this time not to use something that was normally higher risk in regular times, not to try to squeeze some extra savings out by using a consolidator till we're all clear on the health front. And I can't believe that we're in a third calendar year where I have to answer questions, Krista, that relate back to COVID. You know what my kids keep making fun of me about? What? When COVID became an American thing in March of 2020, and we were at the dinner table, and I don't remember my son or my daughter, my school kids, because my oldest daughter's out in her own life, which one asked the question? But they said, Dad, is this thing ever going to end? And I said, oh, this will be over by November. <laughs> we all thought that, I think. And they both come back and quote to me all the mm-hmm. time. So, Dad, is it November yet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was wrong. But I do believe, as I said to you two months ago, that we are moving closer and closer to a time when COVID is an illness we manage, like we manage other things, then the tragic, overwhelmingly disruptive force that it was in 20 and to a lesser extent in 21. And that's said by somebody with zero scientific or medical <laughs> knowledge, but it is my belief that we are moving into a new uh better phase of a terrible event for humanity and that i believe as always uh, i am an unduly optimistic person some would say unrealistically optimistic but i think that that really is how this is going to play from here and as always I want to tell you how much I appreciate you being part of our team, listening to this episode. If you're just happening upon it, please subscribe to our podcast. If you like it, recommend us to a friend. And if you got a favorite episode, share it on social media if you wish. And I hope you have a great, great rest of your day.